0: Um, that Dick shares the pulpit with so many and that you all have graciously allowed me to come year after year. Um, So thank you for that on this beautiful spring day, which obviously here in New York may last uh, a day (laughs) or so. Um, Let me pray for us as we um, engage with God's word together. Um, Lord, there is no fear in love, and so... um, Those of us who claim you as Savior and Lord approach you with great joy, great confidence, um, and great delight today. Um, Or at least uh, we approach you without fear and acknowledging um, that whether we're filled with joy today or um, we're here out of an act of faith and obedience, though we may not feel compelled uh, by love, we certainly know we need to uh, have no fear. And so, Lord, um, with a posture of both receptivity and diligence, we come to you. Would you speak to us? Uh, Would your Holy Spirit inform us of what you intend for us to hear? Um, And would Jesus Christ and his glory be our chief concern? Amen. I I was struck this morning as we were singing um, the second to last song, You Are a Good, Good Father, which um, has become quite popular recently. Actually, friends of mine heard it played in Starbucks um, as part of the background music. Uh, just a few weeks ago. And I was struck by the, um, the bridge, you are perfect in all of your ways, which we repeat several times in that song. You are perfect in all of your ways. And, and I thought both um, how true that is as an a- assertion of faith and simultaneously what an act of faith it is to actually say it in the actual lived circumstances that most of us find ourselves in. Right? You are perfect in your, all your ways um, is an absolute true theological statement. And yet for some of us, I suspect, when you look at the actual life you're living and the actual circumstances you find yourself in, there are enough imperfections in the setting that you're in or the experience that you're having uh, that you are asserting it as an act of faith. Um, And you're singing it because uh, you believe it to be true in the abstract and you're longing to experience it in the actual ways that life is going. Um, Because for some of us, um, the imperfections are pretty clear, right? There are broken relationships in our lives that cause continued pain for some of us. Um, Employment and underemployment and the wrong kind of employment haunt many of us. Um, Ill health uh, is a challenge, or declining health, or the ill health of a family member, or a difficult situation at work. Um, And if we're going to assert... You're perfect in all of your ways. Um, Unless you want to be blinded to the reality you find yourself in, you have to actually wrestle with, how do I know that God is good and that he's trustworthy? Um, And fundamentally, then, part of the act of faith for us is, um, how do we continue to believe that God will do what he has promised to do? The challenge, of course, is that uh, Scripture doesn't actually make a lot of individual promises for us. Greg Howe, you will have X, Y, or Z, right? It's in the, I don't know, 19th book of Greg Howe or something at the end of scripture. That that doesn't happen for us, but there are these greater promises that God makes to his people, right? That he's guaranteed in some way that one day we will be Christ-like, perfect before him, Um, and that the very work that um, raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work within us, and for those of us who struggle and think, Wow, um, I could use a bit more resurrection power and a lot more Christ-likeness, and I'm not sure I'm going to get there, right? The confident assertions in Revelation that he will make all things do and he will wipe away every tear from our eye, that he will be with us, right? Uh, And never forsake us is something that some of us just think, I want to experience that more deeply and more palpably and more regularly. And you can find yourself... Grappling with that, and it's in light of those larger promises that he makes that you go, "I know you don't promise me a job, but I would settle for knowing you're with me right now. so how do we have confidence um, that God will actually be true to who he is and that brings us to this idea of um, covenant um that and um How and what kind of covenants does God make? Now, covenant is a funny term. We don't use it much now um, other than in real estate transactions. Um, If you've done some real estate work or bought a house, um, often there are covenants, um, restrictive covenants on what can be done with land or with buildings. But essentially, covenants are agreements, um, guaranteed promises, essentially. And in the Old Testament times, um, I want to pay attention to three aspects of what make up a covenant one obviously there have to be parties involved right there's somebody um often two parties who are making mutual promises to each other right because without people involved there's no real covenant um but you actually have to have people involved that seems self-evident there is a promise involved in covenants and usually in the old testament times covenants could be both um promises of things i will do positively for you i will give you this land in perpetuity but there could also be promises of um punishment if you failed to live up to your side of the covenant. So often in um, covenants between uh, kings and vassals, there would be, I will give you this land in return for X. If you fail to do X, I will punish you in these ways. And the person would agree on their side of the covenant, I will receive this and do this for you. And if I fail, uh, you will punish me. And if you fail to do it, um, I have legitimate right to rebel or do something evil. And then there's a guarantee. What were the consequences? And um, as uh, was noted earlier, um, the sacrifice that accompanied covenant making, um, and it was not uncommon to uh, cut things in half. Um, This passage talks about animals, but um, in some ancient Near Eastern texts, you'd cut people in half, usually slaves, to demonstrate how serious you were. And as you um, separate the halves of the body, this is a little graphic, you would walk through the middle and. What happened um, at various millennia throughout the uh, Old Testament times is as you were walking through part of the covenant-making process was in some cases to say, may this happen to you. Well, no, may this happen to me if I break my covenant with you, right? May I be sundered or killed in the same kind of way? So, covenants often had these parties who were involved, right? Promises that were made and guarantees. Uh, what were the consequences? Did they happen? So, I want to look at this covenant, right? This um, This, um, first time that scripture says God made a covenant with Abraham because really the entire trajectory of scripture begins to bend at this point on. Now, God makes promises in Genesis 12 to Abraham that your children, uh, in a sense will be as vast in number as the stars in the sky and they will be a blessing to the nations. And almost anybody who works in missions will say that's really kind of the trajectory where God begins to talk about the redemption of the nations and their blessing, right? But it's here that God starts to make this promise and, um several commentators that i was studying um as i was preparing the sermon today said this is the most significant thing that will ever happen to abraham occurs in this chapter because god formalizes a covenant and this covenant then becomes um the touchstone through everything that happens in the rest of the book of genesis and indeed in the rest of the old testament as god continues to work out these promises so let's look again um at verses um at the verses from 7 to 21 So who are the parties involved? Um, He also said to him, so the Lord says to to Abraham, so the two parties are right there, right? And listen, look at how God identifies himself in this passage. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Now, the difference between the parties could not be more stark if you're paying attention to what's going on in the story of Abraham at this time. Who's Abraham at the time that God is making this covenant with him, right? Abraham is essentially um, an immigrant uh, who does not have residency anywhere. Um, he's journeyed out of Ur of the Chaldeans, right? He's a foreign immigrant into the land of Canaan, so he is landless. Um, he's older. He's probably uh, in his late 70s, early 80s, and in that time and period in the tragic situation of being childless to boot, Right? Um, he is wealthy, and the prior chapter to this talks about his ability to muster up enough servants to be a credible military strength. So he has some position and recognition in the land. But as you look at his own situation, being old and childless, he has nothing in terms of God's promises that were made in Genesis 12 that he would have um, inheritance of children, much le- any child, much less enough children um, to be like the sands of the sea. And um, he's still wandering. Now, there were a lot of nomads at the time, but there's no sense if you're wandering about that you're going to establish um, a powerful patrimony self-right. So he doesn't have a lot. And then you look at him in that situation, and then you begin to look how God uh, introduces himself. God talks about himself as, I'm the Lord. And um, he uses the name Yahweh here, which later... In Scripture, you begin to associate with Yahweh as the covenant-making God, but um, God says, I am who I am. Um, You are in your 80s and elderly now. I am eternal. I am who I am. You may have some military power and may have rescued your um, nephew Lot just recently, but I am who I am. I control the universe. I made the universe, and I am powerful. I am eternal. Um, And even in the language that God uses to describe who he is to Abraham, if you're familiar with the story of Scripture, you hear resonances that get picked up later, right? Um, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. And it's that same language that gets picked up then in Exodus, right? When he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand to bring you into this land. And God is, right? Answering, fulfilling his covenant with Abraham as he begins the great process of the Exodus. But the great power and eternity of God compared to the very limited agency that Abraham has is really clear and underlined in this text. And in part, I think as we recognize the disparity of God versus Abraham, it helps us begin to engage how we as people begin to engage with the covenants that God makes with us, right? Um, when we doubt, will it ever happen, these things that God promised, when we begin to wrestle with how long, oh Lord, am I going to have to live with this kind of a situation and not experience everything that you promised to your people, it's helpful to remember our frailty and his immensity. Um, Our experience and perspective is so bounded by our experience and our lifetime and our limited power that what we're experiencing now seems like it lasts forever. But it's critical for us to remember that God's perspective isn't bounded in the same way. Because he's eternal, because he is the one who identifies himself as I am who I am, right? Um, I am the one who is and always will be. That he's eternal. And if he's made a promise in time, he won't forget it because all of time is within his grasp. Neither will he deteriorate in the way that I seem to be deteriorating, where I say I will do things and I don't quite remember a couple days later or even hours later sometimes. Um, But he will remember, and he's powerful. Age hasn't diminished his capacities, but in fact, he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, still the one who creates the universe and sustains it. He can accomplish what we need. And I think when we begin to look at life from the perspective of where God stands rather than from where we stand, all of a sudden we have a little bit more perspective in how to engage God's covenant goodness to us. The Heidelberg Catechism is um, a catechism that was written um, in order to help train uh, children and adults into the Christian faith. And I love the first question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism because um, it's done in a question and answer format, you know, they ask you a question, you're supposed to give a response that would shape your discipleship. And the first question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And listen to the response that people who use it would teach their children, because I think it frames our perspective rightly. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer is this, that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He is fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Do you see the expansiveness with which... Um, the Heidelberg Catechism is trying to frame our entire life. What's your only comfort now in life and as you approach death, whenever it is? God is so in control.
1: Of my body
0: and of my soul, I have nothing to fear. I was reading an interview recently with Elizabeth Elliott. Now, um, those of you who are older, my age or older, will remember her as a, a great, well known missionary, right? Her husband. And she were students at Wheaton College. Uh, they both attended the first InterVarsity Urbana Student Missions Conference back in Toronto in 1946. Uh, went to Latin America, where um, he was killed by the tribe that they were trying to reach. She went on to return to that tribe, uh, had an incredible ministry, and then began a speaking and teaching ministry that affected millions around the world. Um, at one point, uh, somebody said, how did you sustain your faith in those terrible years when your first husband died, and, You had to decide whether you were going to go back. And then she married again later in life, and that husband also tragically died. And they said, you know, you've experienced such pain in your life. How how have you dealt with it? And she said, you know, in the years uh, where I struggled with my faith, in the darkest times, I I had no feelings of love or passion for God at all. And she said, what anchored me and grounded me was that day after day, um, as part of the prayers that I would just choose to pray, I would recite the Lord's Prayer. And she said, in the seasons where I knew nothing about God's goodness, or at least felt nothing of God's goodness, in the years and seasons where his love seemed so distant and my pain seemed so present, having to say every day, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, right, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who, uh, yeah, crucified, died, and buried. On the third day, he rose again. Right, I mean, he, she said, I just kept repeating all of that day after day because even when my emotions could not carry me, the great truth that the, I believed, I knew that was true, um, held me together. And part of what happens as we think about covenant from the perspective of the church is we remember um, the one who makes the covenant with us is the eternal one who actually helps us and sustains us in the difficult times. The promise, then, uh, if those are the parties, the promise are these covenant promises. And um, you'll notice they're made several ways in verses 13 um, through 16. After um, the sun sets and Abraham falls into a deep sleep, then the Lord says, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation, they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sins of the Amorites have not yet reached its full measure. And then he says um, again in verse 18, to your descendants I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt or the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates and the land filled with all of the ites. Um, and it does two things these promises to Abraham one it confirms to him what was said earlier in verse 15 I promise you I know you have no kids right now but you will have descendants and they're going to be really numerous and these descendants will come back to the land that you're journeying in and so trust me this land will be yours even though you don't own much of it right now In fact, own nothing of it right now. (laughs) And so the twin pillars of this covenant are being established, right? You will have immense descendants, and this land will belong to them. Uh, Quick note, you'll notice God says, like, um, I'm not bringing them back right now because in verse um, 16, the sin of the Amorites uh, has not yet reached its full measure. The Amorites were the dominant group that lived in the land of Canaan at the time. And what God seems to be saying is, um, I'm not ready to bring Israel into the land fully yet because um, the Amorites haven't gotten as bad as they're going to get. And sooner or later, I'm going to judge them and your return to the land will be the way I judge them. And it's in fact this verse that helps interpret what you begin to read in the, um, Exodus, uh, well not really Exodus, in um, Judges and Joshua as you begin to see Israel invade the land. Um And God gives these terrible terms, right, to them that you're to execute everybody who's there. And there's not a lot of explanation other than the purity of Israel in Joshua and Judges. But if you go back to this passage, what God seems to be indicating several hundred years in advance is that will be my act of judgment for the sins of those people, right? So it's a helpful interpretive lens. Uh, as you read through the Old Testament. But what I want to point out about this promise is that it's fascinating. Um, If you're Abraham and God makes this promise, you're like, excellent, I'm still going to have descendants. You promised it twice now in the same chapter, if he's really thinking that way. Um, (laughs) Isaac will not be born for 20-plus more years. So they're going to wait. Now, I suspect in this congregation, um, some of us have experienced um, infertility, and you know um, every year is agonizing. And 20 years, especially when you're in your 80s, is doubly (laughs) agonizing. Um, And then think about what God says when he goes, your descendants will not return to this land for 400 years. God kind of just tosses off the number. Um, Not just 400 general pleasant years, but 400 years of long oppression. And um, in fact, we know they're not going to occupy the whole of the land from the river, the river of Egypt, all the way north to the Euphrates, really until David rules that land, which is a couple hundred years later. It's hard to imagine four hundred years of waiting, isn't it? Four hundred years ago this year, William Shakespeare died. Like I, I know it happened, but. And, 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 and maybe, you know, uh, Jillian Peter, because you lived in England and Shakespeare seems more real, like that makes sense. But, you know, like, because right, uh, you, there's more Shakespeare stuff than just plays here. But can you imagine what it would be like in Shakespeare's lifetime to be told 400 years from now, I'll fulfill that promise I made to you? <laughs> right. right? I mean, in the year 2416 we'll complete that project that we were working on. Like, it, it's this immense amount of time. It's so hard to imagine. And I appreciate that because I have a five-year-old, um, Kirsten. And um, Kirsten is desperate to have two things. One, she, um, she's desperate to get a pair of um, flats uh, because she mostly have gym, gym shoes right now, but she sees her older sister, Madeline, uh, wear flats to school, and she's just, oh, can I please have flats? And we said, you know... Um, we're getting to the summer. We're going to buy you sandals first. Why don't we wait till September when school starts, and then we'll buy you flats as part of your school shoes? And she cannot imagine waiting until September, right? <laughs> and she's like, but it's so far away. We're like, it's just September. You know, um, We call her Mei, Mei younger sister in Chinese. Mei, Mei it's just September. It's not that long. But she's like, I can't wait that long. And then her other prayer that she prays nearly daily now is, Lord, please let me get glasses. Let me make my eyes bad so I can have glasses. Because <laughs> everybody in our family... Um, has bad eyesight and Madeline has had glasses for a year and she's desperate, so desperate to have glasses. And we're like, and Madeline's like, don't pray that prayer, may, I prayed it, I hate glasses. But she's like, you know, please, and we're like, we'll get your eyes checked in September, but don't worry. You don't even have to pray for this one. God is going to give you bad eyes. <laughs> now, you know, it's kind of amusing because she's five and we all kind of laugh like, you know, September, we like, It's just around the quarter, But when you're five years old, that's one-tenth of your entire life that she has to wait until she gets glasses. And if you think, really, for the first two or three years of her life, she really has no actual memory of what happened. I mean, it's dubious whether she had a memory of last month. But, I mean, if you think of, really, as a five-year-old, she's only had two or so years of actual living, working memory, that's one-quarter of her entire life we're asking her to wait for flats. And the opportunity to get our eyes checked. (laughs) Those of us who are older, um, six months passes so quickly. And even at my age, right, as I'm moving close to 50, 20 years doesn't seem so long anymore. Because I remember 20 years ago. And that seems just like a few, like a year or two ago that, you know, I had finished... What was I doing then? I mean, I, I was way past finishing law school. Right? I mean, I, I've been on staff 20 years with InterVarsity. It just seemed just a few years ago. And if you're God, who's eternal, 400 years really does go by. <laughs> but it, if, we, if we sit where God is sitting, right, if we allow our minds to be shaped by God's perspectives, If we allow our hearts to be shaped by the things that shape the heart of God, right, if we actually say, how do I have the mind of Christ in this matter, this larger eternal perspective then begins to really reframe how we experience things. It doesn't diminish the actual pain that we experience here in the world today. It doesn't diminish the sense that this is not how the world should be, that I'm struggling with these issues. But when we realize the covenant-making God has these immense timescapes that he's working on, it allows us to move forward with a boldness, confidence, and a lack of fear that I think is really quite important. Um, I think of the words of Martin Luther King, Jr. Um, He was speaking to a crowd of about 2,000 people at the Claiborne Temple in Memphis, Tennessee when... um, Morning, And he said, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to me now because he'd been receiving death threat after death threat after death threat. And people had heard and tensions were rising. But he said, we've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I won't mind. Like everyone else, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I have seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Later, um, the next night, an assassin's bullet ripped through his body and he died. But there's something about having the perspective that you know God will accomplish his purposes. You know he will actually fulfill his promises. You know, even if you don't see it, God will do what he promised to do. That it gives you some hope, some confidence, and some boldness in engaging and not flinching. And trusting, even if you don't get there, to see it all. Though of course the promise is we will indeed see it. We'll see it in God's presence. We'll rejoice with him throughout that time. In covenants there are two parties and In our covenant with God, part of what we have to remember is that God is eternal, infinite, and powerful, and we're not. Part of what we have to remember is that these promises are true, but they're going to be worked out over periods that are far longer than the short um, 80, 90, 100 years that may be given to us. Part of what's critical in remembering how these covenants work is the guarantee that's made. Right. So in verses 10 through 11, Abraham Um, or in verse 9, God says to Abraham, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, um, these are the same animals that later will get involved in all the temple sacrifices and tabernacle sacrifices um, that are described in Exodus and Leviticus. So God is saying, like, there's going to have to be some sacrifice involved. So Abraham brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite from one another. The birds, however, he did not cut in half because they were just tiny. Like, so it's maybe not worth it. I don't know what they were done. Like, we'll put one over here. Like, But, um, and then the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Um, so this one involves a sacrifice. Um, what's stunning and what's different about this covenant, unlike any other covenant that you would have expected to be made, is notice the party that makes the covenant. Um, in verse 17... When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared um, and passed between the pieces. Now, it's a little odd. like So Abraham's having this dream and like a torch and a smoking fire pot begin to move in the darkness through the pieces. What's that? But um, if you begin to think through how God has revealed himself, and manifested himself through the Old Testament, you begin to realize that darkness and smoke and fire were places where people encountered God. At Mount Sinai, as God is revealing his glory to um, Moses and giving him the commands. When the people of Israel looked at the top of Mount Sinai, what they saw was deep smoke, flashes of light, um, and an overwhelming uh, sense of darkness, right? Um, So much so that some people said it, it looked like a volcano was erupting at the top. And so... What this passage literally seems to say is God's presence, darkness, uh, light and smoke. uh, God himself walks the path between these two animals. What's fascinating is that Abraham does not walk the path with him. Abraham does not make a covenant with God. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and the distinction is critical because um, Abraham is required to do nothing under this covenant. In fact, the verse... Um, that precedes this covenant making is that Abraham believed that God would do what he promised to do in terms of giving him descendants, and that's all Abraham did. God, on his own and by himself, walks that path to say, I'm making a covenant with you because you're incapable of making a covenant with me. I'm going to do everything because you're capable of doing nothing. I'm going to show my love for you, and I will require nothing of you because you can't do anything that would please me on your own. I'm accomplishing it all for you. It's an act of grace from God because in the end, all of these covenants are acts of grace by God where he initiates them, he executes them, and then he fulfills them. And we're merely the grateful recipients of them. And this is why it's critical because if this is not true, if the covenant is something that we actually have to do something for in this kind of a covenant, then really we're in trouble. We're in deep trouble because we can't execute the covenant properly. We can't live out its promises and demands. And then we're going to be stuck. And actually, um, the covenants that are reiterated in Deuteronomy point this out constantly because God's like, and I will bring into this land, and if you stop obeying These things that I've asked you to do, I'm going to cast you out, and I'll have to bring you back after a couple hundred, you know, after another hundred plus years. But what's striking to me about this covenant is that God does everything for Abraham. It's great news, and this is the theme that gets picked up by Paul again in Galatians and in Romans. God accomplished everything for you under this covenant. Enter into his joy, and then what's particularly striking, I think, about this covenant is that Abraham never has to say, through this process, these slaughtered animals, may it be to me, may this fate of being cut apart like this, um, may that be true for me if I fail in meeting the provisions of this covenant? Right? Because that would have been true in almost every other covenant. Abraham should have walked alongside God, say, May this fate be my fate if I don't live faithfully to you." In fact, the only party that seems to say that, at one level, seems to be God. May this be, to me, if either of us fail in this covenant, Abraham, because I think as a Good Friday people, we actually believe that God, as the sole covenant partner in this one, is actually the one who bears the cost of our failure because he has not failed in executing it. That God takes on the curse that should have been, Abraham's burden to carry, but God knew Abraham could not carry the burden himself. And as God walks that path, I wonder if in the midst of the slaughter and the sacrifice, he actually does say, I will bear all the consequences of the failure of this covenant because Abraham, I know you're unable. I know you're going to be unwilling. And I will take care of it all. I will make this covenant. I will keep my end of the covenant. I will fulfill my covenant with you. And when you fail, I myself will bear all of the pain and all of the sorrow and all of the judgment to you so that this covenant will continue. When we wrestle, as we legitimately do, with questions about, so God, how long and how do I understand my current circumstances in light of your covenant promises to make me Christ like, to, to restore goodness to the world, to allow us to live in shalom in its fullness? We're grounded by the fact that God has made these promises in the form of a covenant. The nature of these covenants remind us that really He is so infinite that He's trustworthy. His promises will be lived out on a span that in our short days on earth, we will never fully be able to see all of what he's accomplishing or doing. And that we're going to be able to trust him in that because he's consistent in his character and his power and his purposes. And by this clear guarantee that God makes uh, as we look at this covenant, that he will be faithful, but at least in this first covenant that he makes with his people, he reminds us when you fail, at fulfilling your end of the covenant, there may be consequences, but ultimately I will bear the cost and the burden myself. And so the covenants then become um, a tremendous vessel, a conduit of good news and grace for us. We have a God who's trustworthy, who will do it all, um, and will bear the risk himself. And that gives us some confidence and hope. Uh, this came to me with particular force a couple months ago. I was speaking at Cornell University. And I, I'd done my talk. It was kind of a general vision talk, which they often ask me to do at the beginning of the year. But they said, could you do a and a with our students? I said, sure. Um, and at this point, the great thing is after you've done, you know, a hundred or so of these, students thankfully ask the same questions over and over. So you have, you, it's not as frightening as it could be because you kind of know what will come up. But one student said, you know, um, hey, I, I wonder if you could give us some advice on um, what do you do when you're in a season of life where um, God seems really distant, you just don't feel like you want to keep going on? Which I thought was a great question at the beginning of the year for a college student because so many of them, you know, um, there's a group that's super eager and a group that's like, I- I'm going to give it one more, two more shots, and I may walk out. And um, I said, tell me more. And he said, you know, there are just months of my life where I just think, I don't know if this is true anymore, and I don't know if I can believe. or I- So What ex- God just seems so distant, what do you do? And I, he goes, do you know, do you ever have that experience? And then I just started to laugh. I said, you know, um, I'm old enough. I've not, I've had so many of those experiences, and they never last for just, like, a couple weeks or a couple months. Like, I've had years of my life where God seems distant, where, um, you know, I sing these worship songs, and I read the Bible with half a level, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud. And I said, I get paid to do this, and I've had that experience. And you could, you could tell he was just horrified, right? Like, what are you doing teaching us then? And he, he said, so what, what advice do I have for you? I said, um, in the end, um, I try to show up at church or at fellowship every week uh, because the weeks I cannot pray or have nothing to pray, I just need to know that the people of God are praying the words I cannot pray right now. Um, I need somebody to read scripture to me out loud when I cannot read it for myself because um, when I hear in their voice that they know that God is speaking, and I can see in their face the anticipation that God will speak to them during the sermon that I'm going to endure, Um, and they're going to be fed by, I'm carried by their faith when I lack faith. I said the most important thing I've ever done in my times of doubt has been to immerse myself and to be carried by the people of God when I cannot walk any further. And I trust in the months and the years where my faith is strong and vibrant that I'm helping carry other people along with me too. And I said, more than any other discipline or prayer, it's just frankly showing up because it's there when I'm surrounded by the people of God that I remember who he is and I remember he's trustworthy. I remember that my perspective has to be put in the perspective of 2,000 years of church history after Jesus Christ rose and and it's that that community spread out through time that's sustaining my faith there, even when in this five or 10-year period, it makes no sense to me. Um, It is, in the end... um, taking communion together with my um, family and remembering that Jesus Christ died in my place and on my behalf and I have nothing to fear and he's borne the penalty for me. I said, that, my friend, sustains me when the emotions aren't there and when God is distant. Uh, Because in the end, I'm trusting that we as his covenant people are experiencing the goodness of what he's done. Let me pray for us. Um, Lord, Even as uh, I hear your word, I'm reminded you are good, and that you're trustworthy, and that you're true. Um, So, Lord, on beautiful days where our hearts sing um, and our spirits soar, may we remember your goodness, and on um, days filled with darkness and um, hopelessness, um, may you and your covenant people sustain us and hold us. And we look forward to the day when we will stand in your presence um, and we will see how your goodness has been played out throughout eternity. And we will join with the angels and archangels and everything in creation proclaiming that you are good, you are the Lord. Amen.